I don't really think, you know, when you do an explant, one of the main reasons after I do an explant, I'm trying to do an aesthetic or a holistic aesthetic rejuvenation is to avoid these image issues. Because if someone doesn't, if your spouse or significant other male or female doesn't like you after an explant, then they never really liked you to begin with because it has nothing to do with that. And then if I rejuvenate their waist and hips and thighs and make the breast not as big, but full again, and it fits their torso really well, I mean, that's more beautiful than they began normally. But I try to convince everybody, like the healing begins inside and then out. And as we get your brain functioning better, your anxiety decreases, you feel better. That's probably the sexiest thing they can do. That confidence and sense of self-awareness, acceptance, and that internal radiance. Girl, you've got questions. Questions about your body and how to feel good in it, about your hormones and how to keep them in check. Questions about your sex life and your whole health. Can you imagine having a best girlfriend who was also a triple board certified OBGYN? A girlfriend doctor you could call and ask or tell her anything. Someone who could show you how to live any stage of life before, during, or after menopause in a big, bold, and beautiful way. Well, friends, I'm your girlfriend doctor. I believe you were meant to flourish and shine, to embrace life and awaken to all its possibilities. Let's get there together. Welcome to our show. Should you get a breast implant? If you have breast implants, should you get breast implants removed? Well, and how do you know? What are the symptoms of breast implant illness? What could that be causing to go wrong in your life, in your physiology? And what are some of the symptoms? Are you experiencing chronic fatigue, brain fog, memory loss? Are you experiencing any tenderness around your breast? And the important thing to know, breast explants aren't just for ruptured breast implants. They can be because of infection around the breast implant. So this is certainly a hot topic. Breast implants is one of the most common plastic surgery procedures that are done. And certainly as an artificial device implanted into women and or men, these are uh, the most common. And now we're really aware with decades of practice into breast implants that there are certain ones that are better than others. And the experiment goes on, but what is right for you? So today I'm bringing in an expert, Dr. Robert Whitfield, who is well known in the world based in Austin as the breast implant illness expert. And he really takes a holistic approach. And you guys, let me tell you, This is so eye-opening and wonderful to hear about an allopathic surgeon looking at genetic testing, looking at functional perspective, looking at mold toxicity and and hormone balance and helping patients heal. So let's get started with this interview. Here we go. Well, welcome Dr. Rob to the Girlfriend Doctor Show. It is great to have you here. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, I know we're just going to start out and dig right in. You said yesterday, uh, one of your clients, you're always being found new ways to be humbled. So <laughs> one of your clients humbled you. So tell me about, tell us about that situation. 
Yeah, so the majority of my clientele right now has uh, changed from a breast cancer clientele uh, to mostly I take care of breast implant illness patients. And breast implant illness patients come in lots of flavors, we'll say. And some have extreme amounts of brain fog. It may be just from their breast implant illness, um, but I've found there's a large population that I run into that has mold exposure. And when they have mold exposure, even if they bring someone to their appointments, even a loved one or, or a sister or something or a girlfriend, uh, they have difficulty recounting what they're told, uh, no matter how many times I've seen them in consultation or preoperative appointments. And, and this person was, of course, like most, after explants, it's difficult because the physical appearance change. And she wanted even more counseling, more kind of pictures. And I have an extensive website. I've done podcasting and videos and YouTube to help. And it's still uh, a problem that first time you see yourself after an explant is difficult. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. So, so how did she humble you? She said that I didn't spend enough time with her trying to prepare her for that that moment. And I think part of it is when folks with mold exposure have so much neural inflammation, cognitively, they really can't perceive things and retain them. Because I take pictures of folks, I will draw on my iPad, I'll show them what I perceive they will change and, and potentially look like. We have photos we'll go through on my site, consultations and, and other appointments. And then of course, on their own, they can look at all these things and gather, you know, their own, you know, what will speculatively be their their outcome, but nobody can truly know their outcome until it's done. And and sometimes that's still really difficult. I don't ever sugarcoat things. I don't ever tell anybody uh, my ability to transform somebody is going to be better than their appearance to begin with. I know better than that. I've done breast cancer reconstruction for over a decade and explants since 2016, really. And they're all really complicated. And although I have a lot of expertise and experience and ability, it's still a difficult yeah, I can I can imagine. I think that's so true, never knowing what to expect. And I had a client who was a young woman. She was in her 20s and she'd had double mastectomy for breast cancer. And she told me, you know, in tears, she goes, I, I had no idea really what to expect. I had no idea really what this was going to do to my body. I had no idea that it would affect other parts of my body, vaginal dryness, right. sex drive, other issues. Right. And, and I think this is where, you know, breast implants come in. I'm like I said at the beginning of the intro, like, should I get breast implants or should I get breast explants? I mean, how do you know who's a candidate for explant surgery and who's a candidate for implant? And did I do something to damage my body and why? What was the underlying reason to do that, right? Like, what is the potential consequence worth the benefit? We always look at that in medicine are the risks versus the benefit. Right. And it's a very individual decision. And that, you know, working with clients and counseling for breast reductions, even, right? That's a whole nother is are the benefits out worth, you know, worth the risk. And I want to talk right. about this. Let's dig into into breast. And I think starting with breast eggplant, explants, and how and the connection with mold and what you're seeing. And I think your story is really great to, to share what created your expertise in breast implant illness and that it's a real thing. So many people have been told it's in your heads or it can't possibly be your breast implants. I mean, they're benign, but that's not true. 
potentially. The experience goes back to just breast cancer in general. I was faced with that really early in my medical career. I was in medical school for about two weeks and my sister called me and said she had breast cancer. And so she expected her little brother to know all the answers and to get her sorted out because she didn't really, wasn't very trusting of doctors. And she was um, somebody who chose, even with a early stage cancer, to have a, a bilateral double mastectomy. And so I knew her a surgeon and he took care of her and I flew home for a short period of time to be with her. And then I went back to, to school and in subsequent training, although, you know, the, you never know where you'll end up in med school. It's very few that have a firm understanding of what fits them from a personality perspective, uh, what satisfies them and mine, it became surgery. Uh, it was very obvious. Nothing really fit other than doing surgery for me. And then I subsequently chose plastics after deviating from heart surgery. And I mostly concentrated on reconstructive surgery for cancer. And when you get an explant patient, my very first explant patient was a cancer patient. She came to me, she had relocated to Austin from Georgia and she came to me, was kind of fatigued, you know, years of treatments, years of taking medicines to suppress recurrence. And she said, you know, I'm just, I'm done with my implant-based reconstruction, can you just take it all down? And I had done her consult, her exam. I didn't delegate anything. I, I still don't ever delegate anything in terms of exam or consultation to anybody. And looked and reviewed all of her labs and didn't find anything out of the ordinary. She did give me a fistful of heavy metal testing, which in 2016, I had no idea what to do with heavy metal testing. As an allopathic physician, I was like, okay. I mean, I looked at it all and I was like, I don't know what this means. So... And I had no idea what breast implant illness was. I just said, you know what, from time to time, I've had to take down reconstructions for various reasons in my career. And I haven't converted them all to different reconstructions using other techniques. Sometimes I've just left people at their discretion. If it's flat, they want it to be, and that's their choice. Then I was just the, the surgeon who could help, you know, take care of that for them. So I did that surgery for her. She did ask me to do what's called an in-block capsulectomy. And so in-block is just a pathologic term to mean take out everything intact without disturbing. And that's basically, you know, I had done cancer my entire career. That's how we take out tumors. So to me, it was like, oh, okay, it's fine. I had always taken out reconstructions the same way where I took them down intact for risk of cancer recurrence. So typically I was doing the same thing. I, did, I didn't, from a, a vernacular standpoint, you know, talk about it that way, but that's what I did. And so when I took hers down, I did do it that way. And I sent samples uh, like I always did uh, for a microbiologic exam to look for any bacterial contaminants or fungal contaminants. And then um, I sent the capsule to review by the pathologist because you want to make sure they didn't have recurrent cancer. And she didn't have recurrent cancer, but she had an E. coli infection. So just for your audience who may or may not understand this, to have a hospital declare that you have a infection on a swab, which is like a Q-tip placed on a little auger plate, which is a little Petri dish, has to have greater than 100,000 colonies of bacteria to show that. So for someone to walk around with a true implant infection, which is what she had, that explained her fatigue. But she had no external signs or laboratory signs of an infection. So for one of the few times in my career, I felt completely duped and humiliated because I had missed this. It was an implant infection. She had no signs or symptoms of redness, pain, tenderness, no laboratory 
you know, changes, no white count elevation. I She didn't have a sed rate change. I mean, it, it just didn't like. There were no other signs, no external no. signs of, of infection, <laughs> no. nothing outward. No. Like, and she'd had fatigue workup. She'd had cancer. Yeah. And so, and this wasn't a rupture of the implant because mm -hmm. that's what we typically think. Oh, well, if you have breast implant illness, it's because of leaking of the breast implant. Yeah. So this led me down a very different path. I, I was like, wow. I really miss this in her own. I went back because I was really, this is upsetting to me. I, I didn't like the fact that I just somehow, I went back and I looked at the notes and I, I replayed everything. And as you should, you should always try to figure out when you do, you know, something doesn't turn out. Uh, it's, it's, it's part of, you know, your own, you know, peer review, if you will, look at it and see what you could have done differently. And so... It wasn't too much longer. I had another lady pop up who was not a breast cancer patient who then asked me to do an explant. So this gal had put me on some list somewhere or mentioned me in some form. So now I had people start coming and asking me to do this who weren't cancer patients. They were cosmetic patients. And cosmetic patients have to be dealt with uh, completely different. They can't be done in hospital settings. The costs, the kind of admin around that is not practical for a cosmetic patient. So I had to find a cosmetic place that would do this, that would, you know, kind of give me the leeway to do this and also have the ability to do testing and, and path and everything. And I, I did that and I started doing these and um, I had a, a run of a, I don't know, maybe six months, eight months. And then I had a nurse come from New Orleans. Her sister lived in Austin. They had heard about me. She came to New Orleans she was the poster child for somebody who had an implant infection. Extreme fatigue to exhaustion. History of working in ICUs. Clearly been exposed to every bacterial contaminant that was probably multi-drug resistant known to man. And I was like, okay. So I did her case. And she had the most biofilm I had physically felt on an implant. Just like a glycocalyx, which means for your listeners, just like a slime layer around the implant. And so I swabbed it, you know, and I went out to her husband confidently and I said, she has an implant infection and she's going to do much, much better now. And then when the CLIA-based lab system came back from the swabs, normal flora. And so yeah. I said, oh, wow, this is really, I can't do this. So now I've told these folks, you know, clearly an implant infection. Now I've got data that doesn't support that, but I know better. And she's a nurse. She also knows better. Mm-hmm. And so she had drains in because back then that's uniformly what I did. And I didn't have anything other than the antibacterial solutions that we normally use to put implants in. And so I'll go into that later why I, I no longer use those. So she sat in Austin for a week, putting out 100 cc's to 200 cc's out of each side of her chest daily. So that's an infection. Right. And so... I sat there for a while waiting for these labs to come back while this was going on. And I was like, oh, I get these lab back, these lab results back. And I'm like, oh, I can't use these. So I just put her on what I don't like to do, which is a prophylactic set of antibiotics I would use for an implant infection. And it slowly started to go down, thank goodness, because I had no information to guide, you know, treatment. And uh, for all your listeners, like treating pocket contaminants with antibiotic solutions is highly questionable in my mind because if it's antibacterial but it's a fungus it won't work if it's a, a particular type of multi-drug resistant bacteria it won't work so you have to have things just like we treat surfaces that are ph dependent so if you lower the ph everything unicellular or multicellular in the pocket will be sterilized and that's what i do 
all the time. So that led me to switch from CLIA-based lab testing to PCR testing. So since Valentine's Day of 2019, I only do PCR testing of the implant capsules, and I have the largest experience in the world of BII patients with PCR-tested capsules, over 600, some at this point. But then you started to see real results, and I, I stand by those because I do all of them. I don't delegate them in the OR. I take it out. I take the sample. We put it in a sterile container, and it goes to this uh, lab, Microgen DX, and they do all of the testing for me have uh, for the entire time since that period. And so I feel confident that we're closing the loop on biofilm. And that was an easy way to explain, you know, 45 to 65%, depending on the time you look at my audit. So like, we're talking about the different type, the CLIA testing versus PCR testing. So explain that difference, because some people may have gotten already their breast explants and were told they were negative for infection and never treated. Do you then need to go back and do anything different? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I haven't, I've had people come with incomplete capsule resections and I've taken care of them. It just became really, it was obvious that what we were doing, whether it was placement or removals or explants, something needed to be changed in terms of how you manage the pocket. So a lot of people are worried about not just placement of implants, but somebody who gets a capsular contracture. So a lot of research was done using solutions that lower the pH. And in particular, if you think about it, that makes much more sense because then it's not dependent upon bacitracin, which is an antibiotic, or clindamycin, which is an antibiotic, or anything, any antifungal put in there. So in a CLIA-based system, you swab the pocket using a Q-tip and you rub it on a plate once it gets to the lab and then it has to grow above 100,000 colony units mm -hmm. for them to then the lab tech to go, oh yeah, this is infection, you know, send a report. They'll have a sensitivity pattern based on what grew versus PCR testing, which is a panel ran at the institution that you send it to. And it's looking at 150 types of DNA for different bacteria, fungus, mycobacterium, molds. And so if there's one copy that will be reported as positive. And do you ever, like how often do you see that with explants? Prior to COVID, it was about two thirds of my patients. Two thirds. And then mm -hmm. when COVID happened and people stopped flying to see me, it dropped. So it sits around 45% now. 45% have breast implant infection around a breast implant intact or otherwise ruptured. What percentage yeah. of implants when you're going in to remove them are ruptured? I don't have that. Uh, we'd have to go back in the set and look at yeah. it. Basically, anybody who's got an implant from 96 or older, I consider to be ruptured. If it's a macro rupture and it's leaking everywhere, it, almost certainly they're all micro ruptures where there's sweat or gel bleed in the pockets. So I tell people like grossly, if I see something, but I'm if I'm suspicious, I will not give them back if I feel they're ruptured and leaking uh, or uh, secreting gel because that's dangerous. I don't want anybody messing with a ruptured device. Yeah, yeah, no, that's crazy. And so, I mean, that's really a, that's a big concern, but what you're really seeing with breast implant illness, so, so describe breast implant illness and the symptoms. Sure. Thank so you. my my early experience, it was the standard set of things that are reported where there was 
increased anxiety, problems with depression, the kind of cognitive decline or what was called brain fog. There was associated memory loss. There was respiratory issues, tightness of the chest, shortness of breath. They may have dry eyes, uh, sinusitis, gut dysfunction, swelling, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, recurrent UTIs, bacterial vaginosis, increased problems with candida infections, muscle and joint pains. And that was the large number of samples that I would get, there would be some collection of those uh, symptoms. And so, you know, that unfortunately aligns itself with a lot of things like Lyme disease or mold. And so, or just uh, if they had a positive ANA, which is a test, an anti-nuclear antibody test, if that was positive when their GP or if they'd uh, been referred to a rheumatologist, they would get put on things like methotrexate or prednisone because they felt they had early onset, you know, rheumatoid or lupus or something like that. Not rheumatoid, I'm sorry, lupus. And that's very complicated too, because what breast implant illness to me really is, is out of control inflammation. So the inflammation uh, that drives breast implant illness drives, you know, a lot of the symptomology. And if I look at them now, versus what I had back then. Now I have most importantly genetic testing that reveals defects of their immune pathways. So I have a company that I work with, a DNA company, and they have four pathways of immunity that they examine very carefully for enzymatic deficiencies. So your antioxidant pathway, which is mediated by superoxide dismutase 2, the glutathione pathway, the methylation pathway, which everybody's heard of the uh, MTHFR gene, and it's kind of become vogue to talk about, uh, but there's really five others uh, that are important. And then your vitamin D metabolism. So what I see in my patients is usually derangement in one or two of those pathways when they're symptomatic. I have seen derangement in all of them, but usually there's at least one of them. So if you, you backtrack, it makes a lot of sense for the things I would see. If you methylate poorly, you're more apt to have more nerve pain, more fatigue. People used to get sent to me who were given IV glutathione who got really sick because their glutathione pathway doesn't work properly because they don't have the enzymatic pathway to manage it, either a GSTP1 or something's off their pathway, so they, they can't really metabolize IV glutathione. Then glutathione can become a scavenger and scavenge your vitamins and minerals and actually make you feel worse. And then we all are aware of you know uh, antioxidants like vitamin C, but if you have a poor functioning superoxide dismutase, then your toxic oxygen radical species will build up from your cellular respiration. And you just think of it, all these things not working properly. And you know, you have a, a child, a difficult pregnancy, you have some stressor of life, you get toxic mold exposure. I mean, there's just all these things that when you go back that I didn't know now, I'm sorry, that I didn't know then that I know now, like I just go back in time and I just Say, all right, Dr. Anna, what happened six months ago? Why did your symptoms start six months ago? Did you move? Did what your house trigger? have a leak? Mm -hmm. You know, did you travel somewhere? Did Dental you eat surgery. Yeah. There's always like, if you go back, you'd be surprised if you just listen, how many people will tell you exactly what happened. And that was yeah. their, their, their trigger. Or I consider everybody who lives in Texas to be exposed to mold. If you live in Hawaii, Florida, Louisiana, anywhere on the coast, I think you have a mold exposure. I have a lot of people come from Georgia. I just, it makes so much sense when you hear them too. Like if they get into the car with Dr. Anna and they're, they're like, Dr. Anna, your radio is really loud. And Dr. Anna says, well, no, it's not. So that's neural inflammation that's stimulating them to make that sound seem 
a lot stronger than it actually is. And that's a very calm and that's a good tell when you have a somebody with them like their daughter because their daughter will say, oh yeah, she always says that. She always says the music's too loud. Or the, I have a gal who developed a seizure disorder exactly the same time as she moved into a house on the coast. Mm. And so, you know, I tell all of them like, hey, you need to get this test done to see if you have mold and we'll treat you if you have mold just to help you resolve what is not just an implant-based problem, but it's a genetic pathway problem, a lack of supplementation problem, maybe a dietary issue, but it's all interconnected and it causes a lot of endocrine dysfunction as well. So their hormones will be all out of whack. So you're looking at those five enzymatic pathways to determine for mold toxicity or specifically the SOD2? So the four pathways, especially the methylation pathway will make you more susceptible to toxic mold or environmental toxins. You'll just, you'll have a lot more trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And so when you're treating now, you're like first, like who should get implants to begin with? Who should get breast implants and are they safer now than they used to be? Is the, yeah, I mean, from a, yeah, now? from a safety standpoint, the technology is way better. So from a safety standpoint, when, you know, your standard of care is high in terms of placement, I mean, I did these for breast cancer patients and I think it was very different for me. I mean, I trained in big centers and I did everything in a hospital-based environment and the standards were super high where I worked and the people who taught me, I, I feel like I was taught by great people. So I, I carried on those techniques with me. So I didn't really see these problems. Plus in terms of my cancer practice, I did not place a lot of implants. I was a microsurgeon. So I would do what was called the DIEP free flap, which is taking the tummy tissue that would have been discarded at a tummy tuck and using that to create a breast reconstruction in a muscle preserving, nerve preserving way. So that was what I was known for nationally. And it wasn't for implant-based reconstruction because in the community, that was being done more routinely. If you needed something more complicated, you would come to a tertiary care center, which is where I worked. And I also did head and neck reconstruction. And I also did rare tumor reconstruction for sarcomas of the extremities. So it was really a, I was in my own little weird kind of bubble, if you will. So I didn't really see this. Um, I would have occasionally a patient who had a bad outcome or capture contracture, and they would come to me to convert their implant-based reconstruction to a tissue-based reconstruction. I feel like, you know, I didn't like operating on young people. And so I never did a lot of implants. I feel young people are unequipped emotionally, typically to understand the consequences or to deal with the risks. It doesn't matter if it's a hip, knee or breast implant or dental implant for that matter. Everything has got a shelf life and will have to be dealt with over time. Yeah. So how do you counsel someone if they, they come in and they're thinking, you know, I, I may need to get explant surgery. Do, who's the candidate for explant surgery? And is there a way to know beforehand if you've got an infection? Be other than the genetic uh, susceptibility testing. The best way I've gone to, you know, helping folks is pattern recognition. You know, I've it's just like when we trained initial protocol. And so I've, you know, probably done 900 consults at this point just for BII. So when I listen to somebody, it's very clear to me, you know, the symptoms they're having, but I also ferret out the other things like mold or Lyme. And I try, I don't treat Lyme disease. I'll help treat mold exposures. Uh, but I think it's critical to get their food sensitivity testing done, evaluate their hormones and make sure all of those things from a gut brain perspective are as optimized as I can make it. And from a hormone perspective, optimized because recovery, the way I do uh, my holistic accelerated recovery program it's based on those things as well as supplementing pathway deficiencies uh, whenever possible to get the best outcomes. 
So what have you found to be the quickest and fastest way to get rid of mold toxins? I mean, that's something that I learned back in early 2000s because my nurse practitioner, Libby at the time, had a house that was, you know, she discovered that she was mold sensitive, genetically susceptible to mold toxicity and that, you know, peripheral exposure to chemical sensitivities. And it was like, we had to clear out the office. I had mold toxins in my home and had to do a complete renovation remodel on the structure of the house, on the ventilation of the air conditioning, for instance, and some walls. But the second thing is that internally, how we clear mold. So there's the concept of antifungals using binders like cholestyramine. And I'm curious as to, especially with an encapsulated you know, breast implant or with the biofilms, how you're able to break those down and get them out of your system. So forensically, when we look at biofilms, I've had four patients out of 600 explants that have had fungal component. And when you go back to them, they're all actually pretty explainable about where they live or what kind of environmental exposures they had. One was a triathlete, two lived in Houston, and the third had another environmental type exposure. So those all made sense when you spoke to them. And like you said, the number one thing is change the environment. So if it's their home, it's got to be checked, mitigated, or they move. That's complicated. So I try to meet them initially and say, okay, you drink filtered water, right? You drink water out of a bottle. So the air, just think it needs to be bottled or filtered. And so you need to get a filter. And so all of my rooms in my office have a freestanding HEPA filter. And the ones that I use the really filter the highest are IQs, and they filter down to 0.003 microns. So they'll take spores out of the air. So I just let everybody know up front, like, this is what I recommend. And then a binder is how we start. You know, a lot of my patients, Dr. Anna, don't have good digestive health to begin with. So you couldn't put them on a significant binder regimen if you wanted to. So I start with trying to get their air uh, cleaner and then go from there. So I I think the biggest hurdle is, is it their house? If it's their house, what are they going to do? Yeah, I think that's, again, reducing exposure, right? Reducing exposure. And and that's, that's the challenge that, you know, paying attention to maintenance of of our structures, whether it's our physical structure or the structure we're living in, our home makes a difference. I use, you know, I definitely use air filters. I use Air Doctor and I also use Valera. So that's in our offices and they ozone, they ozone the office because it's in Georgia. They ozone the office at night when they're not there for two hours. And so it's set to, you know, we're set to continually, we know there's humidity. It's set to, right. you know, we have the dehumidifiers, we have the air filters, we have the ozonator to keep our products and people safe. And so there's that. And then we take that into our home and how we how we do that. And of course, like changing out air filters, different things like that. I'm actually recording in my new office basement. And I was like, okay, is there mold in here? You know, like, is there any, you know, where, cause you know, basement and I'm in Dallas, like who has basements in Dallas, but I'm up on a hill and and I have a basement. So I was That's definitely rare. very rare, very rare and very cognizant of, okay, is there any evidence of mold, any, any sensitivity? And you can test, but the best thing to do is to bring a mold sensitive person into your house right? right. <laughs> and they will tell you right away. Yeah. So if funny. I visited you, I would tell you if, if you had mold, I'm very sensitive to it. It's uh, unfortunate, but I have a methylation pathway issue. So it, all that stuff really bothers me. So I don't take it lightly. We just moved into yep. a new new condo in Austin. And the first thing I had done is like, you know, 
I really don't care about your earnest money or how much this costs, but it's going to get checked to make sure it doesn't have mold in it. Yeah, so. I, I agree. And do you use the ERMI testing or do you use a different way to test your environment? So we used uh, the mold doctors and they use Great Plains. So. Mold doctors, Great Plains. Okay. Our audience will want to know that because that's something to check. And certain times, you know, the chronic fatigue, there's the visual, what's it called? The visual acuity score yeah. that you can do from Dr. Schoderer's. What's that's right. Name? Yeah. I don't know the name. Vi yeah. Visual acuity score is a test that can be done to look, okay, well, you know, the visual changes are definitely positive because of neurologic issues in mold patients. So there's that. Oh, you yeah. can do an ERMI test, ERMI, and you said mold doctors and they use great plain labs. So again, you guys, no one's a better advocate for your health than you are. And it's a the thing always to think about it. Benefits, do the benefits outweigh the risk? So right back to this, Robert, is that, do we have, so if we have implants in, what is the decision-making process to remove implants? Yeah, so uh, traditionally, my clients were seen annually from the time of placement. And at the eight to 10-year juncture, I would speak with them about exchange if there was any product issues. But the implant has a rupture rate of a half percent per year after that eight to 10-year to window. And so I always was changing out a breast cancer uh, patient's devices. I didn't do that in cosmetic patients because there are many cosmetic patients are just transient or the doctor's transient. In this instance, in the same place for 10 years for cosmetic patients where I was for cancer patients. And then I, I changed, but you have to have surveillance. You have to have exams. There is, you know, a large elephant in the room called ALCL, which is a cancer associated with textured implants. And so you need to be having surveillance for that annually. And those usually develop fluid around the implant. So you'll have a swollen breast and then and that can be evaluated on ultrasound. In my population, I've had two patients, one with breast cancer and one who had a B-cell lymphoma. All are, are fine because they were taken care of appropriately at the time. When someone comes to me and they're having significant symptoms and they've decided in their minds that they want to have an explant, it becomes a little bit simpler. If they'd come to me early in their evaluation process of what they should be doing, and then I hear their story, I can work with them both on their, you know, mental health aspects, their gut health, their hormone balance, and hopefully uh, get their DNA examined and then get them optimized so that if they ultimately need to make that decision, I have lots of ways uh, through holistic transformation of fat transfer to offset the aesthetic changes. So I try to encourage clients, if you're super sick, you're super symptomatic, an explant alone will be a step to help you, but it will not be the only step that solves the problem because it's usually a multifactorial problem. An explant and a lift will help lift sagging tissues and, and make that uh, more aesthetic. And then, of course, uh, adding fat to revolumize or reshape as well as then reshape the waist or the thighs probably is the most advantageous, especially in my 35 plus uh, group. But uh, fat transfers get a bad reputation for not being sustainable or the take is not high enough. I don't experience that in my clients because fat needs estrogen to survive. And so when you take my 9,000 clients and look at them on average, they're all in some version of menopause. And you have to check 
their hormones to know that. So I do that. And then you have to balance them out because they're just not ready to take care of themselves in a way that is going to uh, give them the best possible results. And for recovery, for my holistic accelerated recovery program, I want to make sure that everybody's hormones are balanced because say, for instance, we do a postmenopausal woman's case and she doesn't really need much estrogen, but her testosterone is undetectable or too low. She will stay swollen have less energy, have more problems in the short term and the long term with that result if you don't balance her out. I have lots of examples in my early uh, cases of this. So now I've just, I balance my own uh, cases with testosterone around my time of recovery of about four months so that I know I get people off onto the right track and they can recover efficiently. We also really, you know, for people who are detoxing or right after body contouring, uh, lymphatic massage is extremely important. So we have a therapist and something called the Balancer Pro, which will do the whole body in about an hour and 30 minutes. That sounds good. So if you have someone who has implants for cosmetic reasons, and then will you change out those implants? Will you remove those implants and put new implants in? Right. So in 2022, I stopped taking care of other people's implant problems. And I said, I'm just going to concentrate on holistic transfer. So I don't take on any cases where there's uh, an exchange wanted or a capture contracture problem. I will just say, look, and my team does this for me, you know, they pre-screen everybody and say, he doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't use or, or place devices, not because of any specific thing other than he wants to concentrate on taking care of the best way he can, the uh, explant patients. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I appreciate your honesty and integrity. Well, tell our audience how they can get a hold of you. Wow. So we have two domains. If you want to learn more about breast implant illness, we have the breast implant illness uh, expert site. We have my domain, drrobertwhitfield.com, my YouTube channel, Dr. Rob's Solutions. And then if you want to see what we do for immune support or testing, you can go to my store on Shopify, Dr. Rob's Solutions. Dr. Rob Solution and Breast Implant, Breast Implant. Yeah, breastimplantillnessexpert.com. Breastimplantillnessexpert.com. So a lot of great information there and your podcast, your YouTube channel, and your website at Dr. Rob Whitfield. Robert. Dr. Robert Whitfield. Okay. Dr. Robert Whitfield.com. And so guys check that out. We'll have the links in the show notes at dranna.com forward slash show. So check those out. And now for the favorite part of my audience, it's the rapid fire questions. So the girlfriend, Dr. Brand, Dr. Rob is built on four pillars and that is to nourish, shine, awaken, and embrace. And so ask you, what is your favorite meal? What's my favorite meal? What is your favorite meal? Uh, I really like Thai food. So we have a great Thai restaurant near the office and uh, it germinated from Thai food in England. One of the best places we could go was a place called The Navigator next to Cambridge where I worked. And uh, the mom and the husband, they just created great food, hot as heck, but I, I really like Thai food. I do too. A lot of anti-inflammatory ingredients in Thai food. I got to <laughs> love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> You always wonder, like, how did how did this become a food? The medicinal benefits, oftentimes, with these herbs and spices and garlic. I'm with you. I love it. Yeah. Okay. And so, food. So that's our nourish. And then shine. What is as a as a plastic surgeon? What is something that you recommend to your clients to improve their skin radiance and looks? 
Well, so everybody asks the same question, but they don't really understand the answer. They want to know, like, how do I get more collagen that I've lost over time? So we use to rejuvenate and regenerate the collagen we lost over time. You can use it at your face, your neck. You can use it all over your body. It's a regenerating skin nectar from elastin. Regenerating skin nectar. Nectar. A regen skin nectar. Is it a hyaluronic acid? No, it's proprietary. It stimulates, it turns on collagen machinery and elastin machinery. It's not a hyaluronic acid. You love that, huh? I use it for all of my facial rejuve. And then I have a specific cellulite treatment that's proprietary that I use it for. I use uh, that in combo with anything I do microneedling on. That sounds good. Do you use stem cells on your microneedling patients? No, that product right there is tried and true. It has tons of science behind it. Stem cells, depending on how you do them in this country, you're a little limited. Yeah. FDA okay. has highly regulated that. Awaken. What is, um, what's at your, like, what are you reading? What book is at your bedside? Oh, what did I just read? I think the one I read recently I like the most is Metabolical by Dr. Lustig. Metabolical. That's a good name. Yeah, it talks about the discrepancies. Talks about the discrepancies. So a book by Dr. Lustig talks about what the pharma and food industries are actually doing to us and creating illness and has to be treated with medication instead of the food being the fuel and, you know, uh, an ingredient or a supplement beating the treatment. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. And it is, that is the biggest plague of our century what's in our foods. Yeah. So, all right. So for embrace, like you get, what is something that uh, creates, like you work with women often, mostly women, women and men, but the self-image, right? The, the self-image issues. So when you think of embrace, like what is the most important thing, what's the most important characteristic that creates higher intimacy, connection and relationship bonding? Because people are often changing their appearance right. for that attractiveness. Right. And so is is it that? Is it that we need cosmetic surgery? So I, I don't really think, you know, when you do an explant, one of the main reasons after I do an explant, I'm trying to do an aesthetic or a holistic aesthetic rejuvenation is to avoid these image issues because... If someone doesn't, if your spouse or significant other, male or female, doesn't like you after an explant, then they never really liked you to begin with because it has nothing to do with that. And then if I rejuvenate their waist and hips and thighs and make the breast not as big, but full again, and it fits their torso really well, I mean, that's more beautiful than they began normally. But I try to convince everybody, like the healing begins inside and then out. And as we get your brain functioning better, your anxiety decreases, you feel better. That's probably the sexiest thing they can do. Yeah, com- that confidence and sense of self-awareness, acceptance, and yeah. that internal radiance. All right. And so final question, what's your favorite sexual position? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, for uh, our audience, I did ask on, at the beginning, are there any questions off limit? And he said no. No, I'm old and I have bad knees, so I have to stand. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Rob, for being with us today. I know my internet is freezing up here. Your Wi-Fi is buggered. I know. I got to reset it. So I will do that right after. But thank you so much for being here and being on the show, telling our audience, breastimplantillnessexpert.com. 
and Dr. Robert Whitfield.com for, and you know, for visiting you. And we'll have again, the website in the show notes. (laughs) My granddaughter's calling me now too. Awesome. (laughs) So it's great to be here with you. And I thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. For our audience till next time. Thank you for being on the Girlfriend Doctor Show. Be sure to share this episode. We enter always October with Breast Awareness, Breast Health Awareness Month. What can we do to be proactive about our breast health? But that is healing from the inside out, right? Head to toe and top to bottom and inside out and the outside in. So it comes from all these perspectives. And the biggest thing is to heal our mindset, to develop our self-confidence and that knowing that we are worth investing in our health and whatever that looks like to you. But for the holistic healing, that has to happen from the inside out. So I encourage you to investigate if you're not feeling well, what is going on? What could be the underlying issue? It could be if you have breast implants, it could be breast implant illness. If you, if you don't, it could be mold toxicity. Regardless, these are things that are critical under the surface and often hidden from view literally and figuratively. These are things that we don't think about and the eyes don't see what the mind don't know. So take a deep look and look inside and look inside in doing your own inventory, looking at your household, doing the inventory. And of course, as always, food is medicine. Thank you guys for being here. You love the show. Please rate it on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Podcast Addict, wherever you listen to the show. And I thank you for listening. Everyone till next time.